Now I will encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. As we, most of my lessons, I'm always trying to aim for some practical things, some, some how we can apply this and make it useful and helpful. And uh, I've done a number of lessons over the years on the truth and the word being the truth and all that. But our challenge is not keeping that all to ourselves. Um, if you, quite frankly, believe in hell, uh, you should be serious about who you're sharing your faith with. Uh, there is a, a, a genuine mission uh, that we're called to be as part of believers. I told Grace uh, this afternoon, you know, now that you're a Christian, the job is, is not done. Your, your goal is to share the hope with you, that, that you have uh, as you go along through life. That's what Jesus called us to do. And the question in our culture, certainly, is how do we do that? We understand that we need to do it, but how is a little more challenging. Uh, Jesus said, if you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world, well, the salt and the light, both of those uh, analogies are uh, real powerful in a, a couple of ways. One reminds us that it... Salt doesn't do any good if it just stays in the shaker. And we just show up and, and hang out with each other and salt, you know, invites salt to lunch and, and has fellowship uh, with fellow salt and, and we, all the salt hangs out together. All right, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. And a healthy church should do that. However, <laughs> salt is intended to go into a, an unsalted world. And we're not called to be salty, we shouldn't do that, but we should add a little bit of, the scripture tells us, uh, let your speech be seasoned with salt. We should talk a little different, think a little different, act a little different in such a way that uh, people desire to have the fruit of our lives. A second example uh, that Jesus used is the light of the world. Well, uh, light is most helpful in dark situations. I have a number of uh, flashlights in my home. I really don't pay too much attention to them until the power goes out. That's when it's most useful. So, along those lines of being salt and light, we ought always to be thinking, okay, if I'm a Christian, what's next? How do I share the hope that we have? John chapter 18, verse 37. Uh, I know I told you to turn to Acts 17, so you can put your finger there and look at John 18 briefly before we head straight into Acts. Uh, John 18, 37. Uh, the, the, the scene is Jesus before Pilate. Of course, we know where that's going to go, but the conversation is uh, interesting to me. And Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
And how does Pilate respond to that? In a very postmodern way. What is truth? I wish I could have, I wish John would have put some sort of emphasis on which word. Was Pilate genuinely asking or was he asking in a more skeptical way? I read it as a more skeptical way. Because this was a guy who dealt with a lot of one side says this and one side says that and he had to decide a lot of that. So that would be the natural attitude of someone in his position. What is truth? Not for sure that that's the case, but yeah, it's interesting. Jesus says here, I'm, I am the truth, and everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate scoffs. Well, um, we could see a very similar reaction in our world. We're of the truth, we follow the truth, we love the truth, we're in the truth. The world says, what is truth? Because it's so easy in our world, in the information age, at a moment, just in, in mere nanoseconds, to find information that backs up your case. You know, hey Google, can you... Give me some information that proves my point. That's the world we live in. And it doesn't matter which side of it you're on. And so it's kind of easy. I mean, we do that, in, especially in the political season. It can get real frustrating. Because you hear both sides of things. And there's a lot of people sort of in the middle of that that aren't super political, aren't super you know, informed. And they just kind of... Ah, what's truth? I'm not even going to vote. Doesn't matter. Uh, We see that. Now, of course, that's not true. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's kind of the skepticism of our age, but it was the skepticism, at least in Pilate's view, of the idea of truth. Um, Yeah, let's do one more. Because uh, you want that for Sunday night. Second Timothy, I know we said Acts, I promise we'll get there. Second Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Again, Paul to his young protege, talking to him about how to be a good minister. And right here, he lays it out. In fact, I was messaging with a fellow minister uh, early Sundays. I do that, reach out to fellow ministers and just let them know, encourage them, and I'm praying for them. And, um, anyway, he just said, uh, preach the word this morning. And I said, I, w- I will do so. And please do the same. This is where that comes from, Second Timothy 4. But there's a reason why Paul says this. Second Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Um, there was a time in our country, I think, when even... I would just say the culture was generally more open to the truth of the Bible. There was a time in our country when, when people went to gospel meetings and, and people went to debates, uh, not to debate, but genuinely to learn. They wanted to know the Bible. They wanted to know what the Bible said. Um, and so that was a time in our culture when it was in season. You know, it was, it was good. Uh, but there's a time when the truth is out of season. I would say we're probably... Arguably, in this in that season, uh, the truth is not so much 
in season anymore. But he says, no matter what the season is, preach the word. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. All of the challenges that preachers do, uh, he says, do that through the word. And then he said, here's the reason why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And and if that doesn't spell our culture, I'm not exactly sure what does. In an age where you can listen... uh, to the preacher who is, you know, visually, he's eye candy. You know, he's got the, I mean, they've got this whole preachers and sneakers thing. Uh, you've got guys that look perfect and sound perfect. You guys, uh, but, but more than just the, the visual and the audio, uh, audio, it's the doctrine doesn't seem to really matter. People just say, well, it's, it's, they, they seem nice and, We just really, we just don't like to hear the word. What we'd rather do is preach some, or hear somebody who will preach what we'd like to hear. Which is challenging for a guy like me, and not just me specifically, but guys in our position. Because the temptation is always to please the crowd. To do what the most people, what's popular with the most people. And, you know, that, that's, there's a lot of times in my study and prep, it's like, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say this. And I think, uh, and I'm not talking about compromising the truth, I'm just talking about the method of delivery. So, that's challenging. He says, you got to preach the truth. That's what you have to do. And, and everybody's for preaching the truth until the truth Steps on your toes. And we don't like that as much. And you know what they do to messengers. So the challenge, not just for the preacher, but for all of us who are to share the reason for the hope that we have in Christ, is in a post-truth world, in a time where people don't endure sound teaching, in a time when we find ourselves so diametrically opposed on so many cultural issues, the temptation is to just circle the wagons and keep it as tight and secure and closed as we can, which would be wonderful. But for the Great Commission, we violate that if we don't Continually pray for the lost and seek the lost and teach the lost and share Jesus at every opportunity. I guess is this Thursday you're going to have family around the table. Are you a hundred percent sure? that everyone around the table is going to heaven based on your understanding of the scripture, what Jesus said. 
And if there's any doubt about any person around the table, my question is, what will you do with that? Well, I want to make waves. I don't want to hurt any feelings. Okay, maybe you don't have to do it right at the Thanksgiving table. But I hope that we as Christians are paying attention Certainly to our families, to our coworkers, to people, our neighbors, friends, people who are in our sphere of influence. At what point are we sharing the reason for the hope that we have in Christ? It's not easy, but in my study this week, I found a, a, a powerful example from the book of Acts, and now we're in the book of Acts. That was the introduction. Acts chapter 17, we are in the middle of missionary journeys. Uh, I hate to take too much away from our Sunday Bible class, so uh, we are, uh, Paul and Silas have been in Thessalonica, been in Berea, as we noted this morning, they were more uh, noble because of their willingness to examine the word. And then uh, they head off to Athens in a, a world that was multicultural, shall we say. Like us, Paul was in this culture that was permeated by lies and much religious confusion. What he did, I think, gives us some helpful guidance about how we can be sharing the truth Be the salt and the light in a world that doesn't want to hear it. Acts chapter 17, I'll read verses 16 through 34, and then we'll do some analysis. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, and we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A couple of things we know about their culture. They love to know. What they asked Paul specifically was, may we know. We say we live in the information age, but we're not the only information age. They loved the pursuit of knowledge. Now, knowledge is a good thing and a valuable thing, but as we'll see, knowledge doesn't always do the trick. Second thing is, they love to spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, uh, which to me is proof that social media has always existed in some form or fashion. Uh, Just love to do nothing but tell or hear something new. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having demonstrated allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as one of even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in its righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, so there's, there's Paul's message. Um, I know that some preachers have gone to Mars Hill and have given that sermon from memory. Kind of a cool thing if you think about it. Um, but what Paul's doing here, to me, is fascinating, especially knowing Paul's background. You know, Paul, a uh, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, uh, trained under Gamaliel. Paul was no, I mean, he was a, a sharp, sharp guy. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He knew it inside and out. He loved it. He was passionate about it. Um, when, he, when we see Saul in the early books of, book of Acts persecuting the church, it comes out of that sincerity, that sincere, although sincerely wrong, that sincere desire to blot out this heresy called Christianity. The idea, the hubris that one man could claim to be God, and not only just claim to be God, claim to be the, the way to God, that his followers believed he was raised from the dead, <clears throat> Paul, uh, Saul just wouldn't have that. It was his passion, his zeal that consumed him. He really was sincere about that. It took a blinding moment on a road where Saul was, came to the light. He didn't come to light right then. He wasn't baptized, of course, until later. But it took really Jesus literally going, Hey, hey Saul, 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 knock it off. This is, in fact, he would later say, Jesus would later say of Saul, This man is my chosen instrument. That tells you something. I know it's popular today. I mean, some people say, well, you follow Jesus and you follow Paul and we follow Jesus. Well, okay. <laughs> it's not one or the other. It's kind of a both and thing, according to Jesus. Jesus or Saul was 
Jesus' chosen instrument to the Gentiles. And it was because of his knowledge of the word, his love for the Lord, his sincerity, his zeal, and his passion. And in his passion, as passionate people sometimes do, uh, they, they can go in the wrong direction. Okay? And, 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 and you can correct that, but, but you can't, it's hard to get passion But Paul, Saul, Paul had that passion. When he was converted to Christianity, he didn't lose his passion for the Lord. And so, you have to imagine this scene. That that here's this man who's been raised in the Jewish tradition, trained under it, knows it better than any of us do, has, has so much of it memorized has devoted himself, been converted by Jesus, and now is devoting himself to sharing the gospel to the Gentiles and reaching parts of the world that, uh, of course, Jesus promised, but reaching parts of the world that the Jewish people, for the most part, said, oh, these are Gentiles, we don't have to worry about them. In Athens, mind you, (laughs) I like what, how Luke describes it. It says, His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, you take an old Pharisee and you put him in a city of idolatry and, and it stirred something up. It, just, it, it, it was making him mad. There was part of him that no doubt probably wanted to lash out in anger at these people and their ignorance and, and, and their sin and, and their idolatry. But he didn't do that. Instead, he loved them enough to take a very different approach. And I think, and I'd be curious if any of you have thoughts about this, I, but I think in our world, this method would serve us well. Number one, he starts where they are. So the scripture says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. <clears throat> so to the Jews, he reasoned in the synagogue. This is, this is going to be you know, scripture study. He's going to be quoting scripture. He's going to be reasoning with them. He's going to be working and, and addressing their concerns of what the Scripture says. And so he's going to use the Scripture to point to Jesus. To the Greeks, he engaged them in conversation. Now, he's got another group of people, the people that are in the marketplace, uh, that may show some sort of interest, those who happen to be there, people who are just conducting business, but they see this guy teaching or preaching or in conversation. And now, this is a very different group of people. They don't necessarily have this respect and, and love for the, the scriptures, what, what we would call the Old Testament. They have maybe even no knowledge of the law and the prophets. So Paul can't use that which is so familiar to him. Now he's got to have a different conversation. But he starts where they are, and he loves them enough to engage them. What's the opposite of love? 
My first thought is that it's hate, but it's not. The opposite of love is apathy. You see, Paul didn't, well, of course, he was called by Jesus to do so, but could not Paul have taken the attitude, well, they'll just burn in hell. Not my loss. It's between you and God. He, he, he didn't have to. He could have willingly let people that were in, in many ways so distant from him, he could have just been okay with their going to hell. That's apathy. I wonder in my mind if, if God will on Judgment Day, hold us to some degree accountable for the people in our families and the people who sit around the table with us. When he executes judgment, will he ask, my child, you had the truth. You knew the truth. Why didn't, why didn't you share it with them? Now, of course, we all have free will, and people have to make their own decisions. My question is just, will you be able to say to the Lord, I did everything in my power to reach my family for Jesus? I did everything in my, wherever we lived on earth, I, I tried to, to have conversation with my neighbors to bring them to Jesus. Will you be able to say that? I, I think that that's something that drives Paul, is that he is unable to let it go. He's unable to, to, to stand by and watch either Jew or Greek be lost. Now, they won't always believe, and some are going to mock him. But, but, but they will not go to hell having been unwarned. So he starts with them where they are. And he loves them enough to engage them. So, the second is he looks for what they are looking for. Um, it says... Uh, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, as he's looking around at these idols, and there's a lot of study on all these different gods and everything, but I'm not going to go into that. But just think as he's looking around, he's seeing this whole society that, that wants to do it on their own, and yet there's something within them that so desires to worship something that they've got all of these idols. And he wanted to know why that was. He, he, he wanted to engage them in conversation to say, hey, tell me about what it is that makes you offer this meat. What is it that makes you go to this statue? Uh, what is it that drives that? Because there's something there. 
this is not a perfect analogy, and I apologize, but I was trying to think, well, we, we don't really have idols in our culture. Well, I argue with you there, but <laughs> let me give you an example. There is a, a, a young woman, very talented, young singer, um, by the name of Taylor Swift. And this woman stands at the center of stadiums as people recite her doctrines to her. What is it that drives that? Where does that come from? It's sort of the question behind the question. It's not condemning them for what they're doing. It's saying, help me understand. I don't know if we got any Taylor Swift fans here, so tread carefully. I know Gary. I I thought I heard you. Yeah, okay. Um, But what is it? What is it that drives you to do that? Is it just entertainment? Is it just a catchy tune? Or is there something more there? What resonates this girl's songs about mostly, what I can tell, relationships gone bad. What does that tell you about our culture? Once we begin to understand what the, the yearnings and the desire of the culture, what I'm saying to you is, once we begin to understand that, we have an opportunity to pierce with the gospel. We have an opening there. And that's what Paul was doing. He he was looking for what they were looking for. He was sort of looking for the why behind the what. He sought to understand before he he was understood. He had to look around. He had to listen. He had to pay attention in a world full of idolatry. Now, to, to Paul, this would, I mean, just before Jesus, this was heresy. How is he tolerating this? He's looking for hungry souls so that he can give them bread. You say, well, that was then. And I say to you, there's still hunger in our culture. There's still still something that is unfulfillable by this world. As C.S. Lewis famously quoted, There is something in this world which cannot fill me, which can only mean that I was destined for another world. We have to, and this takes a lot more patience. But we have to seek what they're seeking. We have to look for what they are looking for. And when we get to to that, when when we figure out what they're what the true need is, this young lady and her friends, they go up to Kansas City and they fill Arrowhead Stadium and, and they all know the songs and it's all memorized and it's, and it's worship of this person. Why is that? What, what need is that filling? You know, maybe it's the need to worship. Maybe it's the desire to be in relationship. Hello, are we, is there any of the gospel that answers this need here? 
to be clear, I'm not saying go up with a giant sign and stand outside the Taylor Swift concert. I don't think that's going to be very effective. Okay. However, when you, when you get to the why behind the what, when you get to the, the question behind the question, when you look for what they're looking for, you'll, you'll tie into their need for the gospel. And you can do that with about anything. It's harder to do, but that's how Paul did it. And you note that what do they say? <laughs> they brought him there, Oropagus, and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Because he took time to understand them and listen to them and pay attention to the world that he vehemently disagreed with, because he took the time to do that, they wanted to know about him. They wanted to know more specifically about what he was all about, what he was teaching. So the third one is he sought common ground. As he starts, men of Athens, I can see that in every way you are very religious. The men of Athens, I'm convinced, very few, very few of them understood that the guy who was saying this was very religious. They they, they couldn't have possibly have known Paul's background, Paul's training, Paul's understanding of the word. He didn't get into all that. When he says, you are very religious, they were very religious. He didn't say they were right. He just said they were religious. And so was Paul. Paul's walking around, looking at Athens, seeing these idols, talking to people, understanding the culture they lived in. And and he starts with this opening, men of Athens... I can see that in every way you are very religious. It's a very smart thing to do. He starts with common ground. I'm not sure how good you are at making friends, especially if you don't know people. Some people are real naturals at that. Some people are... It's a learned behavior. Uh, But I was reading something recently on relationships, and it was really profound. He said, the the basic level of all human relationship, and especially with friendship, is three words. Yeah, me too. When you find something in common with someone, instantly there's a connection. Oh, yeah, me too. Beloved, late brother Ron Mock was a natural at this. I can, in my mind's eye, still picture him on the foyer, uh, on the bench in the foyer, and you can too, and looking for people that he didn't know. And he'd greet him with a, a handshake and a smile, and instantly he was asking questions. He was, he was trying to get to know them, but, but actually, if you knew Ron well enough, what he was really trying to do was this. He was trying to figure out how he could get them connected to the body of Christ. And so he's asking about where they live and what they did for a living and, and how long they've been in Wichita and, and you know, 
know, a little bit of their background. And he's looking for these kind of data points where he can, and just in his mind, he's instantly trying to connect people. Oh, you're a teacher? Oh, I'm going to introduce you to this teacher I know. Come out here, you know. Oh, you, 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 uh, you're a farmer? Good. Well, hey, I, we could talk about farming, you know. We, oh, and so he just was so natural and so fast at it. He could just do it so naturally. He was gifted at that. That's a good thing. You may not be gifted at that, but if you're looking to share, make a connection with someone, look for that common ground. Make that connection. Yeah, me too. Because it's in relationship where I think we have the greatest opportunity to share the gospel. I'm not against street preaching. I think there's a time for it. But I think the most effective evangelism happens in relationship. Some of the people that I know that are strong evangelizers, I mean, Amy Dobson, Brent Davis, and people like that, they, they meet people that they don't know, but they're always building relationship and connection. It's more than just about shoving a bunch of verses down their throat. It's... Building relationship. Because when you build a relationship and you find those common connections, you build trust. As you build trust, you come to a point where they say, okay, tell me more about this. Help me understand. That's exactly what Paul is doing. You're very religious. He's seeking to make a connection. And he used their common connection to lead them to an uncommon connection, which is Christ Jesus. He says, I'm going to tell you about an unknown God. And he, without even using the Bible, begins to preach the story of the Bible to them, leading them to Jesus. And interspersed with that sermon are quotes from their own culture. For the purpose, not because they're authorized, inspired writers, but for the purpose of making connection. So he starts where they are, number one. Number two, he looks for what they're looking for. And number three, he seeks the common ground to lead them toward holy ground. If you, if you want to shorten it up, he did three C's. He gave a compliment. He made a connection. And that led to a conversation. A compliment, a connection, a conversation. I wish I could tell you I came up with that myself. But lest I be charged with plagiarism, Craig Greenwood is due all the credit as I ran this idea by him. A compliment, a connection, a conversation. I really like that. One, because it's easy to remember. Two, it's exactly what Paul did. Three, it's helpful whether you're, I mean, if you choose to preach on street corners, that will be effective. If you're trying to convert your best friend to Jesus, that'll also be effective. A compliment, a connection, a conversation. All right, we're running long and food awaits us. So let me give you one final thing. Uh, at, at, at the end of his sermon, verses 32 of Acts 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked the Apostle Paul. It's going to happen. We live in a world where it's very easy to mock. It's, it's very easy to be a mocker. Someone who's always skeptical, someone who sits back and goes, eh, that's easy. And it's certainly prevalent in our culture. 
and Paul will experience, and if you share your hope, some will mock. You can compliment, you can make a connection, you can have a conversation, you can lay out the gospel, but at the end of that, they could go, ah, it's an old book full of wives' tales, I don't need that. That'll happen. Okay. So Paul, uh, so, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Others were intrigued. They wanted to know more. They wanted more knowledge. They hadn't yet made a decision, but they were intrigued enough to at least be thinking about it. So Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. Among them who also were Dionysus, Rapagat and a woman named Demarius and others with him. At least five or more people were converted because Paul started where they were, looked for what they were looking for, sought common ground. He made a compliment, established a connection that led to a conversation. And the result of that was some mocked, Some wanted to know more, and some believed. And the same will be true with us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time of study tonight. Uh, We're so grateful for your word and for how it teaches and instructs us, for how it corrects us and rebukes us, for how it reproves us and matures us, for how it grows us. Only your words could do such a thing, Father. I pray that we are a people who are always reading and meditating and thinking about your word, and more than that, letting it sink into our hearts and our lives, letting it overflow out of how we live. Father, for the people here in person or for those watching online or um, watching it at a later time, I pray that we might be a people of salt and light and that we might be willing to get out of the salt shaker, go into a very bland world, and that we might be willing to let our light shine, not hide it under a basket, but to set it on a stand that it may give light to all in the house. Thank you for Paul's example. Lord, we live in a world that's it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a sincere, God-fearing, Christ-following person. Uh, that may get better or... It may not. So, Lord, give us strength and courage and wisdom as we stay on mission to share the gospel and to reach the lost for you. Thank you, Father, for uh, those people who didn't give up on us, led us to the hope of the gospel. May we continue and steward well what we've been given. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.